Good morning. I'm glad the light came on above me here because I have often been accused of being in the dark. That's a dad joke. <laughs> Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for historic confessions that remind us and ground us in a reality that exists beyond what we see with our eyes. To know that the God who created all that we see entered in, and who exists outside of our time also exists in our time and chose to enclose himself with our flesh and blood to live among us, to temple among us, that we might, in worshiping and knowing and believing in you, in the person of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, your Spirit would indwell in us, and that we would know what life is, that we would have life and have it to the full, a life that begins here in this present world and carries forward into the next we thank you for this reality. We live in a world, O oh Lord God, of um, illusory pursuits. Things that we have uh, come to believe are necessary and vital, your word reminds us, are simply temporary things. They are designed to dust and decay. And that the only thing that lasts are those, those treasures, those stores those precious things that we invest for your kingdom and for your glory. But Father, we are also reminded that we live in a world that requires us to work, that requires us to use the material things that we earn and that you bless us with, not only to provide for ourselves and our families, our loved ones, but then to use those things for the benefit of our neighbor in the name of the God who redeemed us and who makes all things. And so we turn our attention to you, Lord God, with great thanksgiving and pray with wisdom that you would teach us how to rightly use that which you have blessed us with, that we might learn from the mistakes of generations past of valuing too much the things of this earth and valuing too little the things of, of heaven. And so we ask, Lord God, that as we turn now to your word, we might receive that perspective that we might see how a word spoken over 2,500 years ago still speaks to us today and will continue to speak on into eternity. Father, we turn our attention to you because we are people who are in need of being reminded that there is a reality beyond the one that we see and feel and perceive with our eyes and hear with our ears. There is a reality that comes to us in the person of your Son, the ministry of your Spirit, the everlasting and eternal nature of your word and of your own being, Father. You have breathed life into us. You have made us for a purpose. You have sealed us and stamped us with your image, with your spirit. And so we pray, Lord God, that as we pursue Christ with a whole heart, Father, you would bless and guide and lead, reprove and correct, instruct and teach, comfort and encourage every step of the way that all might be done out of love for God and love for neighbor. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We're going to continue in uh, the book of Zechariah, and we're going to recap just briefly uh, the end of the first vision and then lead into the second vision, which is in uh, verses 18 to 21 of Zechariah. So picking up the narrative, the conclusion of the first vision in verse 16, uh, Zechariah writes, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I said, What are these coming to do? He said, These are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. Now, as we started last week, we were reminded that all eight of Zechariah's visions take place on the same night, the night of uh, scholars' best guess, uh, February 15th, uh, 519 B.C. All of the visions uh, share a single unifying theme, that God will restore his people by keeping his promise to eliminate evil forever and establish his kingdom on earth through a people who bear his name. So after 70 years of affliction and captivity, God has returned his people to their homeland and now promises that he will make things right. He will keep the promise that he made to them through the prophet Jeremiah when they first went into exile, when their ancestors went into exile, where Jeremiah told them, the Lord spoke through the prophet, I will give you a future and a hope. I know the plans that I have for you and they are to give you a future and a hope. Zechariah's first vision takes that promise and begins to explain it in visionary form, to inject hope into the hearts of his fellow Jews who have been returned to their homeland after 70 years in captivity. The Lord in this vision and in these visions promises to give his people strength for today and hope for tomorrow, which is another concurrent theme that runs throughout the entire book. This promise is encapsulated in what God says at the end of the first vision, that he will again comfort Zion, and he will again choose Jerusalem. And that leads us into the second vision, because the second vision it will explain how God will comfort Zion and what it means for God again to choose Jerusalem. This second vision validates and verifies and fortifies this hope that he has given to them, by promising his people that he will protect them, that he will provide for them, and he will do so by justly dealing with the nations that have unjustly dealt with them. And having spent his anger disciplining Israel for her disobedience, God will now spend that same anger on the nations to punish them for punishing his, his people. So he will spend his anger to punish the nations he sent to punish his people. And the reason why God is angry with these nations 
We know from the first vision it's because they exceeded their mandate. We know that God will often use, you read through the Old Testament, he uses nations to punish other nations, in particular to punish his own people. But they exceeded their mandate. They demanded these nations, Assyria and Babylon and Persia, they demanded from the Israelites what belonged to God and God alone, their worship, their love, their loyalty, and their obedience. And so God appears to Zechariah to communicate to him so he can communicate to the rest of the returned exiles that they will now have hope and a future because God will deal with the nations that have dealt unjustly with them. So in the first vision, hope comes riding a red horse. In the second vision, hope comes by way of four craftsmen who are sent to terrify and cast down the nations that have terrified and cast down Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. And this then becomes a source of their hope. This becomes the substance of their hope. And hope, in essence, here is simply trusting God to make things right. Having that confidence, that certainty that comes from the character and word of God itself, hope is trusting God to put things right. And so hope is a Vision will unfold as we work through the rest of the sermon. Hope is trusting God to make things right after a season of affliction. This verse is 16 through 17. We'll look at that in a moment. Hope is also trusting God to know who is responsible for causing our affliction. And then hope is trusting God to deal justly with those responsible for our affliction. So let's look at that. Let's unpack the, uh, the last part of the first vision because it's important because the, the, the last part of the first vision establishes the context as well as the, the content for what follows in the second. So hope is trusting God to make things right after a season of affliction. Look at verses 16 and 17 again. God speaks, right? He says, Therefore, there says the Lord of hosts, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. And my house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be scattered out over Jerusalem. Cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Jerusalem, uh, comfort Zion, and again choose Jerusalem. We're revisiting these verses because they establish the context and the content for the second vision. There's a season of affliction that the exiles have been through. I was reading uh, this week in, in uh, the devotional that I use. It uh, contains a lot of writings of the Puritans. And uh, a Puritan by the name of Matthew Brooks wrote a, a treatise on afflictions. And uh, this, is, this is a memorable quote from that little book. Uh, Brooks says this, We must measure afflictions by their outcome, not how they hurt. We must measure afflictions by their outcome, not how they hurt. We tend to do the opposite. We measure our afflictions by how much they hurt, which obscures the outcome. Here, in relaying how God is going to deal with the returnees back to Jerusalem, the affliction is to focus their attention on the outcome, to measure their affliction on the outcome. And the outcome breaks down into five basic things. And his uh, really good commentary on uh, Zechariah, a man by the name of Richard Phillips, he outlines five 
essential outcomes that are the result of the affliction that his people have gone through. We're going to move through them very quickly because we are going to get to the second vision. But just to slow down for a moment and just look at the end of this first vision, that the first outcome we can expect after having been afflicted by God is the promise of God's mercy for our sins. I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy, says the Lord. We have this sense, and particularly here, God did not return to Jerusalem in order to finish them off. He didn't bring them back to Jerusalem and say, okay, now that I've got you back, I'm going to finish what I started 70 years ago. No, he has an intention to show them mercy. There are times when we have gone through a time of affliction where we feel a distance from God, we feel separated from him, and we fear his approach because in our heart of hearts, although we know that his nearness is is for our good, we dread it because we're uncertain in our own weakness whether or not God is drawing to us to further punish us, to further afflict us, or to restore us. And here, the word of assurance is when God returns to us, he does so for the purpose of showing us mercy. The Lord wanted all those who returned to Jerusalem to be confident that he would not treat them as the, in the same way that he treated their ancestors, that he will show them mercy, he will forgive their sins. He has returned to them, and he expects them now to return to him. His offer of mercy is genuine, it's sincere, it's real, it's wholehearted. All he asks is for them simply to heed the words that Moses first spoke to their ancestors all those years ago. All God is asking from the returnees, all he is asking from us is what Moses says in Deuteronomy 6.5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That's the expectation. The purpose of affliction is to expose how far short we fall of this and how deeply and how greatly we need to rest on the mercy of God to help us do this. God never gives a command for which he does not also give the ability to fulfill. And in every command of God, there is a promise contained within it. That if we love the Lord God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, with all of our might, the love he has for us prior to whatever love we demonstrate to him will flood us and overwhelm us and fill us so that as it overflows from our heart, it flows into the lives of others. God shows mercy in order that we might now more fully experience what it means to love him with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, even when we have strayed from him. You fast forward to the New Testament with this aspect of God demonstrating mercy. Remember in in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter delivers this amazing sermon under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He stands up and he proclaims to thousands there who have gathered in Jerusalem for worship. And after he delivers this rousing sermon in which he ends by saying, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. The the hearers of that sermon are, are so stricken with conviction by the power of the Spirit, they ask Peter, what shall we do? 
If, if, this is, if this is the Christ whom we have crucified, what is our response to this? What ought we to do? And Peter says simply this. He doesn't say, be prepared. The end is near. The hammer of justice is going to fall on you. No. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's Acts 2, 37 and 38. Now, um, there are people in that audience who weren't there at the crucifixion, but the, ex the, the extent of God's forgiveness and mercy extends to anyone who has not acknowledged that Jesus is the Christ. So mercy is offered to every person who is repenting and who is baptized in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And that offer is genuine. That offer is sincere. That offer is real. And as the late night commercials will tell you, but wait, there's more. Because in addition to that offer of mercy through the forgiveness of sins, through the confession of Christ, also is the promise to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, who will help us love the Lord our God with all of our soul, all of our might, all of our strength, and all of our mind. So how do we fulfill Deuteronomy 6.5? Confessing faith in Jesus Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit who helps us love him. This is the mercy that God extends not only to the returned exiles in Zechariah, but he offers to us. Remember, we read from Ezekiel 36.26 where the prophet there says, I will give you a new spirit, I'll give you a new heart, so that you will walk in my ways and you will keep my statutes, you will keep my commands. So even in the Old Testament, there is this promise of the Spirit to empower, to help, and to assist. So the first outcome of affliction is mercy for sins and the ability to walk faithfully with God. The second thing is, the second outcome is the fact that God now dwells among his people. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. This flows out of what Peter says in Acts 2, that come to Jesus Christ, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. You receive salvation, you receive the gift of the Spirit. God comes to dwell in the midst of his people. Here, in Zechariah, it's through the reconstruction of the temple. The temple of Israel, the, temple in, uh, the meaning of the temple of Israel cannot be overstated. Um... We have great attachments to our home. It could be an apartment. It could be a nice house, some, a room. But if we were to lose that, if our home is destroyed by fire or flood or some catastrophe, we have lost something in that destruction. Well, when the temple was destroyed, that same sense of loss is magnified because of what the temple represented to Israel, which is the, the very presence of God in the midst of his people. But more than that, when the temple is destroyed, the identity of Israel is lost. And more than that, this sense that is God really God? Because in the culture of the day, when nations went to war, it wasn't simply nations that fought, it was gods of the nations that fought. So when Israel falls to Assyria, when Judah falls to Babylon, the horror of horror to the Jews is Yahweh is not Yahweh after all. It's like the old joke that I think Mel Brooks would tell as a 2,000-year-old man. When he was asked, was, you know, was there God back then? And they said, oh yeah, we had a guy named Phil. And Phil was, was, was going to say he was God. And then one day a lightning bolt struck Phil and he died. 
And we all said, what do you know? There's somebody greater than Phil. That's where Israel is at. Is God God or are these other gods greater than he? And God, in fulfilling his promise made to the people through Jeremiah and the prophet says, the nations, the, the nations have it wrong. I have kept my promise because I am God of gods, Lord of lords, and King of kings. The glory that departed, the glory that Ezekiel sees in Ezekiel 10 and 11, which is one of the most depressing aspects of, of that prophecy, when the glory of God lifts up and the cherubim, they take the coals from the altar and they, they leave the temple. So now that structure simply becomes a building, an empty building, because the glory has departed. Here now God says, I will return. I have returned. And near the end of Ezekiel 11, God promises, the reason why God lifts his glory out of the temple in Jerusalem in Ezekiel's vision is so that he can now dwell with his people in the midst of their exile. And now that they have come back, his glory returns. And in language that is very reminiscent of Ezekiel 36, this is what the prophet Ezekiel says in verses 19 and 20 of Ezekiel 11. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put in them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they might walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. How? Because God will put a new spirit in you to do so. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. This promise is fulfilled in the coming of Christ. When Jesus, when John, uh, the gospel writer, talks about the word becoming flesh and living for a while among us, or dwelling among us, that word in Greek can also be translated templing. So Christ walks the earth. He lives as the embodiment of the temple. And as the embodiment of the temple, he displays the glory of God in all of its fullness. And John says that we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. And as the, the one who embodies the temple, he then imparts also, does Jesus, the Spirit who allows us to, to know that God dwells no longer in buildings made by human hands, <laughs> but in men and women created by the breath of God. So when the, the exiles return to Jerusalem, the promise that is made to them is realized through the coming of Christ. And so we are the recipients of the dwelling of God, having rebuilt the temple, not with physical structures, but through the coming of Christ. And it's through Jesus that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He makes it possible to have the Spirit of God living within us. By whom, uh, Paul says in Romans, uh, Romans 8.16, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And again, Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, speaking of the Holy Spirit, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you? 
He's speaking there, Paul, to the church collectively and, in, and Christians individually. Just, if you just meditate on that for, a, first for any minute of time, you should really wrap your head with duct tape because it will explode. Just to dwell on that. That's an outcome of affliction, to realize that the process of affliction, the, real, the, real, the, the reason sometimes God does afflict us is so that we will understand what it means for him to dwell within us. And then the third outcome we can expect is God's promise then to rebuild. Because when God <clears throat> shows us mercy, puts his spirit in us, the purpose is to build us up, to raise us up. And the measuring line, says Zechariah, the measuring line shall, go, shall be stretched out over it. This measuring line, um, it, it just symbolizes that there's a building project going to take place. Right? The first thing you do when you move into an apartment, you move into a home, what do you do? You get out the tape measure and you start you know, measuring for curtains. You start measuring, is, uh, is there, are the rooms big enough? Do I need to expand? do building projects, and so forth. So that's the, the imagery here. It tells us that God has plans to give his people a future by building them into an ever-growing, ever-increasing, and ever-expanding community. And we see this again played out in the New Testament as well. Acts 1.8, Jesus, before he ascends, tells his apostles, you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, the measuring line going out. Ephesians 2, 19-22, Paul writing to the church there, this, these non-Jews who have been brought into the kingdom of Christ. Paul tells him, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Mercy, forgiveness of sins, dwelling of the Spirit, building into a community. And then lastly, 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, as you come to him, meaning Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So here we are, scattered like stones, but God raises us up. Puts a new spirit in us. Puts a new heart in us. Gives us a community. So that we don't live in isolation from one another, but we are knitted together into a building in whom God dwells by His Spirit because He dwells inside each and every one of us whom He has called to Himself. This is an outcome of affliction, to be made aware that we understand what it means to be part of a community. Zechariah, the, 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 the downfall of the Jews was they had begun to think in individual terms, not communal terms. They had begun to think in terms of their own prosperity, their own selfishness, their own self-righteousness. And God has to break us of that. 
It's one reason why I think the, the early church sold everything and had everything in common. Because they just understood that there was something communal about what it meant to be part of the church and what it meant to be part of the body. Now eventually God scattered them because that wasn't his intent. It wasn't intent for the salt to be located and concentrated in one place. It had to be dispersed. So whatever wealth, whatever goods, whatever prosperity we had would be shared with others who are outside the kingdom as well as inside the kingdom for the building up of it. So that's the, you know, we have mercy, we have dwelling, we have building, and then the, 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 the fourth outcome is that of, of God prospering. That my cities will again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Now here I'm going to say something which is going to serve as the, as the basis for the rest of the book. That in Zechariah, particularly, but also in the Old Testament generally, Zion will represent the people of God, and Jerusalem will re represent the place where God dwells. That means a strong case can be made that what is true of Zion is true for the people of God, what is, uh, as individuals, and what is true for Jerusalem is also true for the church. So we're going to look at Zechariah from the standpoint of what he is speaking to his people, he is also speaking to us. The Lord, we understand, prospers us both materially and spiritually. And should God bless us and prosper us materially, the, the expectation is that we would be generous in sharing the good things that he has given to us. Remember, God disciplined Israel because its leaders allowed the gap between rich and poor to widen. You see this played out in the Gospels, the way that Jesus deals with the Pharisees in their own attitude. You see this in the way the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collectors played out. You see this in the parable, of, not the parable, but the incident where the widow gives her last mite in, without anyone noticing except Jesus. But the Pharisees would trumpet their giving. So this gap, as this gap widened, that displeased God because rather than care for the poor, which was specifically laid out in Deuteronomy, Israel wasn't doing. Now we understand that God doesn't intend for all Christians to prosper. Some Christians spend their whole lives long living at a subsistence level or below. But he does intend for all Christians to enjoy the richness, the prosperity of the blessings that come from being part of a community, as well as the, the ministry and the blessing of being in, in the kingdom of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So that regardless of the size of our income, regardless of the size of our investment portfolio, even the number of friends or likes that we get, the one thing Jesus promised to everyone who follows him is life and life abundantly. That they would enjoy the riches of enjoying a, a loyal and lasting friendships. Strong and healthy families and marriages. And most of all, God's fatherly provision to meet all their needs. We're going to, the CGs are going through the, the Sermon on the Mount. This week, you're gonna, we're going to get into, I believe it's 619 and following, where Jesus talks about where, are you, where is your heart? Because where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. And where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So you're going to talk about not storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven, but uh, treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. It's going to talk about not worrying about what you eat, what you drink, what you wear, because God is going to provide that. Jesus said as much in Mark 10, 29 and 30. 
Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So all, it's interesting, all of these beautiful things, and then at the very end, with persecutions, <laughs> just sort of it slips that in. But then also, eternal life. You know, I can certainly attest that you know, Jill and I, have, we have lived in several different places. And it's, it's interesting to, to note that if we were to go back to North Dakota, if we were to go back to Ontario, if we were to go back to Ohio, go back to Massachusetts, we have friends there. We have, we have people that would hopefully take us in, <laughs> but we could visit with them. And maybe you have the same experience. We certainly have missionary friends who have received homes and houses and families and brothers and sisters far in excess of their own biological families. We don't think about that sometimes because affliction will tend to make us self-centered and self-focused rather than seeing maybe that affliction is designed to make me look outward and upward as opposed to inward. Whether or not God blesses us materially, his deepest desire is for us to enjoy the spiritual prosperity that come through the blessings of his mercy, his indwelling spirit, building us into a community, and the prosperity of knowing his grace, mercy, and steadfast love. That is the context. What God is warning and encouraging the returnees is don't be like your ancestors. Don't make the same mistakes they did. Do these things, and I will prosper you. So the first vision tells us how God will again comfort uh, Zion as well as ensure the, the comfort, if you will, of uh, Jerusalem. He will punish the nations that he sent to punish Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And this then becomes the content. How is he going to do this? This is the content of the second vision. So let's, let's uh, before we move into that, remember, uh, the nations have exceeded their mandate. They demanded from Israel what belonged to God and God alone, worship, love, loyalty, and obedience. And so now hope comes in the form of these four craftsmen that God is going to send to terrify and cast down the nations that have terrified and cast down Israel. So hope is trusting God uh, to know who is responsible for our affliction. And the vision, remember, they all flow. They're all in one night. So Zechariah is wide awake when he's having these visions. He's not in a mystical trance. He's not hungry. He's not thirsty. He is fully aware, fully cognizant. And he simply says, right after he sees the first vision, and I lifted my eyes and saw, behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. I, it probably doesn't need to be mentioned, but I, I will anyway, that, that the, the horns that he sees aren't musical horns. He doesn't see four trumpets, four coronets, you know, not winter marsalis and a quartet playing. They're animal horns. Um, most likely the horns of a bull. So why does he see horns? instead of bulls. Why not describe the sense, I saw two bulls? Why does he say two horns or, or four horns? Well, if you know your Old Testament, you know your Old Testament history, you know that in, in Zechariah's day, 
uh, an animal horn symbolize its strength, its power, and its authority. So anytime a horn is mentioned in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, um, and particularly in visions and dreams, uh, the horn will symbolize the military strength, power, and authority of a human king or uh, a nation. So you look at this vision from one angle. What's going on here? This is odd, right? You don't see two, you know, are these horns just sort of floating in space? Well, if you, one angle to see the vision is to say, well, these horns maybe represent the four points of the compass, uh, meaning that God's people will be forever surrounded by enemies on every side. Jesus intimates this in John 16, 33, when he says, in the world you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer, have overcome the world. Um, after he's pelted with rocks, the Apostle Paul said it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Uh, the prevailing culture will always be hostile to the church. And in increasing measure, we're told, as the day uh, and hour draw near to Christ's return. But God is never outflanked. His sovereign power uh, over, is always going to be over the prevailing culture. He will always have a witness. He will always have a church. He is stronger and he is more powerful than our foes. And so when we are surrounded by our enemies as living in the midst of a hostile culture, it's good to remember that God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. So that's one angle you can take, that the horns represent the four points of the compass. Another angle is instead of seeing four individual horns, Zechariah sees two bulls, each with a pair of horns, right? Two times two is four. That I learned in public school. Right? So these two animals, these two bulls that he see, in context, would represent the two nations that were most responsible for Israel's affliction, Assyria and Babylon. Now, having said all that, and as interesting as it is to identify who or what these horns represent, that's not the focus of the vision. The focus of the vision is why they scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. We got the answer to that back in verse 4. Don't be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from all your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. So the horns, whether it's a constant threat from enemies or specifically Assyria and Babylon, they scattered Judah and Israel because of the people's disobedience and refusal to heed God's repeated warnings to repent. They had turned away from God, and it cost them dearly. They broke God's covenant when he sent prophets to warn them what would happen if they continued breaking his covenant. They ignored him. And so Israel and Judah chose to be unfaithful to the covenant and to the God who made that covenant with them. But God, be aware that the faithfulness of God is a double-edged sword. Israel and Judah may have been unfaithful to the covenant, but God remained faithful to his word. He told them, if you keep and do these things, I will bless you. If you don't, there will be discipline that will come as a result. So the faithfulness of God is a double-edged sword. As much as God is faithful to bless and reward obedience, so also God is faithful to discipline and punish disobedience, and that's what he does. 
first to Israel and to Judah, and now also to the nations. And so Israel and Judah learn a painful lesson. Sin has consequences, and sometimes these consequences affect the guiltless along with the guilty. Even though we may always live in the midst of a hostile culture, the, the statement that Peter makes in his letter is still going to be true, that judgment will begin with the household of God. There is no such thing as a, a victimless sin. The bill, as they say, if you, this is reach, really, really reaching back, if you remember the end of the first Doctor Strange movie, right, one of the characters says, the bill always comes due. Right? It's another pop culture reference there, just sort of, <laughs> just letting you know where I'm coming from. The bill always comes due. Right? And when it does, the faithful often suffer because of the sins of the unfaithful. That's why the the, the book starts so strongly on, a, on, on an announcement of repentance and renewal. It's like, um, you know, it, how does Beethoven's Fifth Symphony start, right? Ba-ba-ba-bum! You're like, immediately you're drawn in. It's like, you're awake. Ba-ba-ba-bum! That's how Zechariah starts, right? Repent and return! Repent and return! Right? Because if you don't, dire consequences ensue. So for us, in terms of serving and loving one another, sort of serving and loving God, let us resolve to practice what Jesus preaches, to lean heavily on the presence of the Spirit, to resolve to live holy lives, such holy lives, that by doing good we will silence the foolish talk of foolish people. So let us resolve to live in such a way that our neighbors will see our good works, as Jesus says, and give glory to our Father in heaven. Let us resolve to do what is right even when everyone else is doing what is wrong and getting away with it and prospering because of it. Let us resolve to trust God and live in hope that he will give us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Hope is trusting God to know who it is who's causing our affliction. But it's also knowing how God is going to use that affliction to shape us into his people. And then the last uh, part of the vision is hope is trusting God to deal justly with those responsible for our affliction. The answer comes, the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these uh, are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. The interpretation or the understanding of the vision hinges upon who these craftsmen are and what they do. And craftsmen here refers to someone who is skilled perhaps in woodworking or metalworking or engraving. It can also, interestingly enough, the word that's translated craftsman, can also mean someone who drives a plow, a farmer. So strange as it sounds, that translation is the one that best fits the context. The idea of plowers or plowmen or farmers that God sends. It's interesting because Psalm 129 verse 3 says, in talking about how God has afflicted the, the psalmist, 
The psalmist writes, the plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Jeremiah 26, 18 says, thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house of the Lord, a wooded site, a wooded height. So as the nations plowed Israel, God now will send craftsmen to plow them. The number four, we'll look at that in just a more, more closely in a minute. The number four is the idea of completeness. God sends enough help to do the job. No more, no less. He is sovereign. He raises up, he brings down. Terrify is to either drive or scare away. And cast down has two meanings. It could mean to shoot arrows or throw stones. I lived with farmers for a little bit. Some of them could use a bow, but farmers aren't historically known for their accuracy as archers. They can throw stones. And so when you have two raging bulls coming at you that you need to deal with, who do you call? You call a couple of farmers, four farmers to be exact, who will chase those bulls away by throwing stones at them. Now here's where the word, the number four comes in. And I, I because, I mean, if your mind is, is at all thinking four, four, where have I heard that number before? Four farmers, four craftsmen. Then this is, so I'm going to enter into a supposal here. Because what I'm about to say is probably more an expositional point than an exegetical point. But I see that number four, and I can't help. How many Gospels are there? Four. Sometimes God terrifies and he casts down nations that have attacked his people by raising up another nation to attack and to do violence to them. You think how God works in bringing judgment upon the nations. A few years ago, um, a professor of mine back at Gordon-Conwell named Meredith G. Klein. It's a man's name, Meredith G. Klein. Wonderful scholar. He wrote a very academic book commentary on the, the visions of Zechariah called Glory in Our Midst. Um, this is what Klein says about the craftsmen. He says, Let the nations of the ungodly consider the faith of Israel and see in Jerusalem's desolation the divine vengeance that will invariably overtake them as covenant breakers in Adam, except they repent. Let me read that again. Right? Let the nations of the ungodly consider the faith of Israel and see in Jerusalem's desolation the divine vengeance that will invariably overtake them all as covenant breakers in Adam, except they repent. You see this certainly in, in the fall of Babylon in Revelation 18. The idea that God is going to bring the nations to heal just as he did unrepentant Judah and Israel. When? Well, certainly throughout history, nations have risen and fallen. Right? God raised up the Assyrians to cast down Israel. Then he raised up the Babylonians to cast down the Assyrians and Judah. Then he sent the Persians to cast down the Babylonians. He sent the Greeks to cast down the, uh, the Persians. I've left out the Medes. The Medes get involved in this as well. God raises up the Romans to cast down the Greeks. And although Rome collapsed from within, 
the case can be made that God raised up the church to cast down the Roman Empire. That little stone that Daniel sees in his vision. Right? Because God brought down the Roman Empire not with violence, not by rebellion, not with swords, not with spears, not with armies, not with horses and chariots, but with the stone that makes them stumble and the rock that makes men fall. Remember, the weapons of our warfare are not guns and bombs. <laughs> it's not even social media. Twitter, Instagram notwithstanding. We have a weapon that is far more powerful, far more stronger, far more durable than any of those things. We know what it is. It's the word of God. It's the gospel. The gospel is the stone that we cast. We throw truth. We don't throw rocks. <laughs> right? We throw out Jesus, if you will. We exalt him, not our might, not our wits, not our strength. Because we believe what the Bible says about the gospel, that it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And that as the power of God, the gospel is just not our hope, it's the hope of the world. I was thinking again through this morning, I'm going to wrap this up because the hour is late. There's this marvelous line in Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress. And I think I'll end with that. The last two stanzas of this amazing hymn, Luther writes, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. May it always be so, that when the gospel is preached, that word above all earthly powers transforms lives, brings nations to heal, and exalts the king of the universe who has blessed us with his presence, his spirit, his word, and eternal life. If you think about that, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are... Um, grateful and thankful. Continue to empower us through your spirit that we might, in that power, his power, proclaim the word with fearlessness, with boldness, with courage, walking in the mercy and the hope and the strength that you give us. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.